Harvard Divinity School. Displacement and Belonging in Israel-Palestine, Harvard Student Stories of Learning and Context, March 2nd, 2023. Welcome, everyone. I'm really delighted that you've joined us tonight. My name is Hilary Rantisi, and I'm the Associate Director of Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative, a program of religion and public life at Harvard Divinity School. So for those of you who don't know, our work at the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative centralizes an analysis of structural injustice, violence, and power, and examines how a more capacious understanding of religion can yield fresh insights into contemporary challenges and opportunities for just peace building. The primary case study of our work focuses on Israel-Palestine, and our aim is to stretch the scholarly discourse around religion and the practices of peace building, and to examine the decolonial potentialities of art, religion, and identity transformation. So our Flagship course, which you're going to hear more about tonight, is Learning in Context, Narratives of Displacement and Belonging in Israel-Palestine. This course includes a full semester course on campus. It includes an experiential learning opportunity on the ground and, and also an opportunity for some of the students to do internships um, in country after uh, in the summer. So tonight we're going to hear from five of the 16 students who took the course last year. One of these students wasn't able to travel with us on the experiential component, but was still able to do an internship in Jordan during the summer. And you will be hearing from her tonight as well. So the students will be sharing some vignettes from their experiences. And before I hand it off to the students, I wanted to share some more general information about the course. So the course is unique at Harvard because uh, we're intentional about creating a diverse group of students from different backgrounds and uh, from different graduate schools at Harvard. This past year, we had students from five different schools, Harvard Divinity School, Kennedy School, Graduate School of Education, Graduate School of Design, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Harvard Law School. This year, the course is ongoing this semester. It, we have a similar diverse group of students enrolled in the course, and I'm pleased to see some of you here tonight. So you'll be getting a preview of maybe some of the experiences you will have in June. So the experiential component of the course from last June included a two-week intensive travel period that consisted of 43 engagements. These were either tours, visits, or meetings with organizations or individuals, both in Israel proper and the occupied territories. We met both with Israelis and Palestinian organizations and individuals and heard a wide array of narratives. The course is intentional about centering marginalized voices with an emphasis on just peace. As we travel, we learn, we examine various forms of violence as well as narratives of hope and liberation. As the title of the course suggests, we engage our senses around narratives of displacement and belonging, 
Some of these narratives are very painful and hard to see, and others are life-affirming and joyous. So it would be impossible, of course, to share all what we experienced together. But um, tonight we're going to be hearing from five students who will be uh, presenting. They, they, will, they have chosen what to share from their time. And I hope uh, some of these students also stayed to do the internship. So you'll be hearing a variety of experiences. And I hope it will generate interest for further conversation. We'll have time for Q&A at the end. And I know there might be some students who are with this cohort. Yes, there are a few who are not presenting, but I think would be happy to uh, engage in one-on-one -on -one conversations for anyone who'd be interested. So without further ado, I would like to invite our first presenter, Zishan Ali. Well, thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Zishan Ali. I am a graduate of HDS Masters of Theological Studies. I graduated in 2022. Last year, I had the pleasure of taking narratives of displacement and belonging in Israel-Palestine, and I participated in the experiential learning component. I was also generously funded by the RCPI to stay on and do a summer internship uh, with uh, the UN OCHA, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. It's a mouthful. Okay. Um, I begin with the image of the villa in the jungle, uh, which is how one former Israeli prime minister once described Israel. That quote was first introduced to me by Orly Noy, an Iranian-Israeli political activist. Westerners will go to the Middle East and they'll be amazed that it can look like Europe, like the United States, like Silicon Valley, like New York City. Doesn't it look like a villa in the jungle? Pretty, developed, and surrounded by what seems to be the uncivilized and backwards. But the beautiful villa isn't the whole story. White tourists on segways is not the whole story. If there's one takeaway from my speech, I hope that it makes you question every superficially beautiful thing you see in this context, as each moment of beauty is connected to one of suffering. On day six of our trip, we traveled to the southern Hebron Hills and visited Masafra Yatta. It's a collection of 19 small Palestinian villages in the West Bank, which has been under occupation uh, and Israeli military control since 1967. We visited a small village. We sat with locals. They served us tea. They told us about how their land was being grabbed by the state of Israel to build illegal settlements. New homes for new migrants were plopped directly on top of the small Palestinian village, towering above. We saw how Palestinian homes are continuously demolished, but power, solar panels, telephone, and internet lines ran through the settlement. Building up an area is possible if you care about the people who live there. A sloped hill connected the village to the settlement, and grass grew on that hill, but nowhere else. Who was watering this grass? The answer to that question revealed an ugly truth. Uh, the grass grew because the settlers were dumping their sewage on the Palestinian village. The seemingly beautiful lush greenery was 
sprouted from defiled soil, soil that was nourished by the feces of the oppressor. This metaphor, I think, applies to all the beautification we encountered. It's a metaphor for the false face of progress. During my time with the UN OCHA, uh, I helped report on various humanitarian crises that Palestinians faced as a result of the occupation. And I came back, I came back to Masafriyata during a UN field visit. But the diplomatic field visit was different. Uh, rows and rows of armored cars brought mostly European diplomats. It felt more expensive. And the meetings were more brief. We didn't sit there all day. We didn't really connect. It felt like we were in and out in 15 minutes. Village leaders were pleading in a very concise fashion to these diplomats so that they may go tell their countries to intervene in their situation. And we heard a new story this time, uh, a new myth, a myth of security. The Israeli government was taking their land for the purpose of increasing security to establish temporary military bases. Will they ever be removed? The village had been converted into a military training and firing zone. The bullets from firing practices would hit children. They've killed children, all under the guise of security. The villa in the jungle, the villa needs protection from the jungle, supposedly. The villa needs protection from Palestinians. Supposedly justified preemptive violence. It's cowboys and Indians out here. That's what one rifle-wielding volunteer security guard told us in Hebron. But the diplomatic visit was so quick that some diplomats, if they weren't paying attention, missed what was going on. One of them told me, it doesn't look that bad, the that the military base wasn't so big, not knowing that it could have been a step towards a permanent, a more permanent land grab. This all continued. We went to Akka. It was beautiful. It was being further beautified. Buildings were renovated. Renovated buildings were next to dilapidated ones. Gentrification. You can't see it unless you're looking, but this juxtaposition symbolizes a fight for the identity of the place. The street names reflect no Palestinian history, and our tour guide, Taysir, reminded us that 95% of the Palestinians living there are refugees from other villages. The gentrification was supposed to be good. It had grand promises. It was supposed to provide jobs. But the beauty is superficial, reserved for a select few. The visual signs of progress are no substitute for the preservation of one's people and culture. The locals have been driven out by economic pressures and racist laws. The progress is merely a facade. We saw olive trees in the northern West Bank. They were green, they were lush, but they had been poisoned. Again, like the grass in Masafariyata, the soil had been polluted, this time by chemical waste uh, from Israeli factories. If these factories, in fact, were in Israel, they would violate the state's own environmental laws. They've caused cancer in local residents. And as olive trees remain a source of income for so many Palestinians, this destruction hurts the livelihood of so many. These vulnerable, defenseless towns and villages in the Nablus area have been subject to attacks and burning by settlers, including in schools. Beauty, suffering goes hand in hand. Uh, 
And sometimes the beauty is over-glamorized, even within the West Bank. We had fun in Palestine. We danced at Ramallah's Millennium Hotel. Uh, we hung out at Snowbar. We ate at a beautiful restaurant in the hills. Beauty still takes place. Joy still takes place. Fun still takes place. Uh, but that shouldn't be weaponized to say that there's no apartheid or no suffering. Both can be true. And my experience of both was tied to my own privilege. As an American, I walked through checkpoints that West Bank residents could not walk through. I wasn't even harassed. I didn't fear death. I casually went to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam, on a Friday afternoon with my very hospitable coworkers when so many devout Muslims in the West Bank have never been and would not be allowed to go because of the restrictions on their movement. Uh, I was even at a pool party the night that Gaza was bombed. We were less than 50 miles away. Many people there had connections to Gaza. Some were devastated, others traumatized. But for many, that pool party continued on. I was lucky. These are just snippets from my story. That's all I have for tonight. Thank you for listening. And now I invite up Sheer to share some thoughts. So yeah, my name is Sheer. Um, I'm a second year master's student, MTS at Harvard Divinity School. I study religion, ethics, and politics. Um, and yeah, this summer um, I had the privilege and the challenge of um, going on the trip through RCPI. And I also stayed afterwards for a minute internship working with Just Vision, a documentary film company that makes um, some really, really incredible films, one of which Boycott was just um, released yesterday uh, for uh, online distribution, and I highly recommend it. Um, and my peers are going to share some really profound things. Um, and I just wanted to share something a little bit, um, a little bit personal about my experience this summer. Growing up, I was taught that Shabbat, the day of rest, is a taste of the world to come, a palace in time where we can imagine life as it should be. But in Israel-Palestine, sirens announced Shabbat like an echo of an incoming emergency, 24 hours in which essential public services shut down and time slowed without consent. While spending my summer in Jerusalem through the RCPI initiative, the, the question of whether to celebrate Shabbat as an anti-Zionist Jew pressed on me like a heartbeat growing louder. One of the spiritual crises I experienced this summer was whether to observe this tradition intrinsic to Jewish life and practice because Shabbat was being used as a tool of the state to assert authority over Palestinian movement and livelihood. The irony did not escape me. I was in Jerusalem, a place deeply significant historically and spiritually to my people among many others, and yet the morality of observing Shabbat was up for debate. In the US, Shabbat was an act of resistance to capitalism. Shabbat was a defiant stance against assimilation into white Protestant Christian hegemony. Shabbat was a fight against productivity culture, overcommitment and anxiety about not doing enough and not being enough. 
To rest for 24 hours was to leave space for dreaming, to honor my ancestors, and to expand my awareness of the world I often take for granted. In Israel-Palestine, I wondered if boycotting Shabbat was another form of resistance. Israel told me, you are a Jew, and so your legacy, entitlement, and power are here. You can own Jewish practice at the expense of other people. You are entitled to Shabbat in this land. To abstain from Shabbat then felt like a stubborn rebellion against the doctrine of the state. Israel tried to convince me to engage Jewishly in order to feed its agenda of suppression, control, and colonial power. I refuse to give in to the kind of Jewishness Israel wants me to be. But was giving up Shabbat the right way to resist Zionist hegemony? As I worked through my complicated feelings, I also knew that engaging with Shabbat practice could be a tool of deep resistance to Zionism. I did not want to give in to a conception of Judaism that weaponized religious and spiritual practice as a manifestation of state control. If the state owns the spiritual realms of my life, where can I find freedom, rest, and joy? I realized that despite the dominance Zionism tried to exercise over me physically and psychologically over so many people, it could and would not penetrate the spiritual expanse of my Judaism and my relationship with the divine. Ultimately, I did decide to celebrate Shabbat. I set it aside as a period of time where I did not work. I bought produce from Palestinian vendors in the old city and cooked dinner with these local harvests for my friends. I tried to replenish our sense of connectivity and joy after our energy was drained from the internships we did, be they researching Israeli military trade deals, confronting issues in bilingual Hebrew Arabic education, or dealing with distributing vital resources to Gaza. On Shabbat, we went to day trips. We went on day trips to Jericho and Ramallah. We watched the sunset fade slowly over the West Bank, and we drank local beer. By spending Shabbat as a time to invest in one another, we created a space in which we discovered the divine in our friendships. We sanctified the Shabbat through relationship. We created a palace in time where love and connection laid the foundation, where trust built the walls, and where we could look out the window and see Palestine decolonized, a taste of the world to come. Hello, everyone. Um, this is Norlina Bulgam. I'm a second year master's <coughs> student at the GSD, the Graduate School of Design. And today I'll be talking to you about my own experience following the Narratives of the Displacements course, which took place this past summer um, from Algeria. And that had a lot to do with my own experience and shaping it. Because unlike my peers, I did not manage to go to Palestine with them. And that is because of my nationality. However, I wanted to still do more coursework that is related to Palestine, and that is why I shift my experience toward the lens of um, the refugee communities that are living in Jordan, where it, where, it's, where, it, where it highlights the highest population of Palestinian refugees at the moment. So just a brief, to kind of understand 
while particularly Jordan. So following the 1948 Nakba, which presents the event where a lot of Palestinians were forced to flee and, and being forcefully displaced from their hometowns in Palestine and moved to other neighboring countries, mainly Lebanon and Jordan. Um, a lot of big population moved to Jordan and they occupied certain refugee camps. And we have another wave of Palestinian refugees occurring in 1967 following the war. And typically when I say refugee camps, I get a lot of different connotations to it. Some people think that that means tents, others envision it let's say, incomplete housing or something temporal, because it carries this notion of temporality. However, what I'm about to share with you shows a very different perspective. And let's get to it. I've also handed these, this is collage that I've made. It shows um, a compiled version, a visual comp compilation of multiple pictures that I've, take, that I've taken in different camps across Jordan highlighting particular living experiences and how they, how they navigate the, the everyday urban life. Um, just to highlight, I was in Jordan also interning as an NGO named Ruad, having my expertise operating at the intersection of research and architecture. I shaped my experience there toward design and how to influence the urban, the urban fabric. So I've conducted design thinking workshops, and also um, participatory art workshops with the people there in Palestinian refugees camps, and also some 3D fabrication exercises. Yet what struck me the most was the spatial qualities that I luckily navigated going through these multiple camps. So some of the camps are formal, some are not. Some are recognized by UDNRWA, some are not. Some are recognized by the state, some are not. And that shapes very much the lives of the people, their rights, what they are entitled to, where they stand in the country, and what kind of job opportunities and livelihood opportunities they have. So to start with, one of the camps I visited was named Gaza Camp, and it's actually named after the people that live there, where they were displaced twice. They were displaced first from their home, hometown towns in, in Palestine, and then they were moved to Gaza Strip, and then from there, in 1967, they were displaced again to Jordan. And that had a lot to do with the very hard and difficult, complicated urban fabric of the camp. As we can see, the situation is very much deteriorating. Uh, we see trash and dirt everywhere. The public space is primarily inexistent. For example, this is supposed to be a playground, but as you can see, it's not conducted that way, and it's, it's not, it does not really allow for much for the kids to have. Infrastructure is very poor, if existent at all. And that is why, for example, we see they created this um, kind of engraved tunnel here to allow for water to go through, which they only have access to once a week on a Wednesday. The also, the also notion of privacy is very much challenged, and that is why they create these partition walls around their entrance doors to create some sense of privacy, because they're stuck in a very limited land, and it's hard to create, to, to have a private space within that very limited land. This is another example that I would like to share with you of a different camp called Mohammed Amin camp, also located in Amman, Jordan. And while it's located at the center of the city, Amman, which is the capital of Jordan, as you can see, it's very hard to access it. So this is, in this picture I'm showing a school, the only school that is in the area. And for, for the kids to actually go to this primary school, they have to climb up the mountain every day. 
And this is how it looks on the ground. So it's, filed, it's filled with trash. And they have to climb up the mountain every day to get to school. And also, another thing, aside from the school, also to navigate their own homes, they have to climb up these staircases that are very high, highly inaccessible, particularly in cases of emergency. Uh, let's say when the case of, of, of a fire or let's say uh, as natural disaster, it's very hard to access, which happened. Like by the time I was there, they were telling me the story that happened in August where they could not rescue a certain woman just because the, 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 the fire ambulances, they could not access the space. However, while I've highlighted the very hard life that these camps entitle, still there is much a very big source of resistance and resilience that is embodied within these camps. And we see that in multiple forms. First of all, through the public art, that is, the public art that is very much harvested within the community. So for example, this is a different camp that I've been to, it's called Nasr Camp. And it's an informal camp not recognized by the UNRWA and not recognized by the state, yet it's a place where more than 50,000 people live today. And as we can see, they rendered the urban space and the public space with this beautiful uh, graffiti art highlighting their attachment to the case and their attachment to their homeland, Palestine. Another thing that struck me the most about this public art is the fact that it's very concurrent and up to date with everything that is happening today in Palestine. So we can see, for example, this drawing of Shirin Abu Akla following her murder. And also this is the, the land, uh, the, the Earth Day, or the Land Day. And it's a very important day in the Palestinian calendar. And they were also highlighting it with this graffiti. This drawing also speaks about the Nakba and how people were forced to flee um, the Palestinian territories in 1948. <clears throat> Another way that, I, that these communities tried their best to withstand their identity and keep, keep their strong, uh, to reclaim their right to their homeland is through recreating Palestine with this very limited land that they have in Jordan. How they do that? Through basically naming every street and every store where, from which they make a living, let's say, after their hometown that they left in Palestine. So we see, for example, we have Sharia Yafa, Street of Yafa, Carmel, for, after a certain Palestinian city, um, Palestine Clinic, Halhul, which is located in Hebron today. And this is how they share these intergenerational stories with their kids, which typically have never been to Palestine because they cannot access it. But still, they kind of remind them of this legacy that they left over there. These are also other examples. We see uh, Yafa, the, the Palestine Clinic, and multiple different examples. Another notion that I found very interesting visiting these camps is that how these people, with very much little that they have, they try to reject this notion of being a refugee as a burden on the host country, which is Jordan. But rather, they want to be act active, of active agents of change. And they carry that very much through multiple um, businesses, local businesses, that are very much at attached to their own culture. So we see, for example, this Palestinian satris, this embroidery work that they have, um, the mosaic work, which is also very much part of their Palestinian culture. Uh, and they try to make out of this their everyday tools. Um, pencil cases and other tools that they have in, that they use in their everyday life. There are also 
knowing that the Palestinian culture is very culture is very much in, uh, big on agriculture, they still keep on these these uh, these practices, creating botanic gardens within the camp because they don't have land, let's say, to harvest within the land. That's why they create more of these um, farms that that like in their own homes, still kind of keeping keeping their practices alive, their agricultural practices alive. Another thing that struck me visiting these camps is how much they're attached to the refugee identity. So while I walked in these camps, I've conducted multiple interviews with the people, and whenever I would ask them, would you rather leave this camp and move to, let's say, a different place in Amman or a different place in Jordan, where you have more land, more livelihood opportunities, would you rather do that or stay within the camp? The answer is no, I would like to stay here. I'd rather stay here because holding on to my refugee identity means that I'm reclaiming my right to return to my homeland in Palestine. This is my community, this is where I belong, and I'll stay here until I go back to my homeland. And I found that very interesting and inspiring. And that also manifests in the public space. For example, uh, here they, they write it on the, on the wall that is uh, highlighting the boundaries of the camp. They write the name of the camp, and they say, like, this is done for the camp. Also throughout the, the graffiti, we see here it says, the son of the camp, like being like a, a refugee, son of like a refugee camp. Another way that they highlight these communal practices um, is through putting these signs within the streets. Let's say if a certain family is having a celebration, a wedding, or uh, a funeral, or any sort of a gathering that, that, that needs, that, that requires for a big gathering to, 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 to be held. Uh, what they do is they put these big signs inviting everybody to participate. And that's what is written here in Arabic. And this is how they celebrate these communal um, values that they have. So this is everything for me. This is what I wanted to share with you. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>
Israelis here live under civil law, so they aren't tried in military courts. Palestinians, their neighbors who live right beside them, they live under military law, so they are only ever tried in military courts. Two laws, two people, one place, apartheid. At the end of that path that seems to take you to nowhere, which I think is actually kind of the point, it makes you feel like it's a place where you could disappear. You cross through security with its usual Byzantine turnstiles and humiliations. And then you find yourself in a kind of somewhere nowhere. Makeshift seating, big open awning, feels a little bit like an oversized bus stop where people are waiting, waiting. There's behind it a sort of squat slapped together building, four walls and a roof. I don't remember even if there was a bathroom. And that place is full of parents and siblings and aunts and uncles and families, each family a story, waiting for a person to be tried, sentenced, imprisoned, or if they're a child, detained under house arrest. I'm gonna let you guess what the conviction rate is. Just an idea in your head. Do you have it? It's 95%. 95% of Palestinians here are convicted. 800,000 Palestinians detained since 1967. 700 children a year. That's two children a day every day. Usually for something like throwing stones. They came in the middle of the night. They were screaming, she said. This was a mother. Her boy was taken. And the story is so often the same. He was in bed. It was three in the morning. They took him in the middle of the night. They blindfolded him, handcuffed, threw him in a military jeep. But he was sleeping, so they didn't know that he wore glasses. And then I noticed that she was holding her chest, but what she was really holding was a pair of glasses that was sort of tucked into her lapel. And she said, I come because I, I just want to give him his glasses. To call them courts is a kind of overstatement. First, there isn't really any justice here. And second, the funny thing is they're little more than shipping containers. They're actually, I promise you, they are corrugated metal on stilts. There are nine of them all lined up kind of like mobile trailers in a row. It's sort of like a caravan penal system. And they're all meant to sort of look, to appear, to give the illusion of being temporary. But what temporary? Since 1967, 56 years of temporary. You walk into one of them and there are benches along the back. There are a couple desks, a makeshift stand and a platform where the judge sits. Again, judge, I think a bit of an overstatement. And an air conditioner sort of drones lazily in the corner. And I have to tell you, the soldiers, the guards and the bureaucrats, they look so bored. It looks so bored because nothing new or interesting ever happens here. It's always the same. Palestinians come, they're found guilty, and then they go. Except when two young men who I suspect are probably similar in age to many of us here, they're escorted in, handcuffed, and then there's a flurry of activity. One of them lights up like a Christmas tree. He yells, Mom, Dad. I don't really speak Arabic, but that much I know. Mom, Dad, he yells. He's smiling. And the older couple behind us are, are on their feet, and they're burbling away. And again, I don't really know what they're saying. But I sort of get the feeling of it. It's, 
How are you? We miss you. We love you. Are you okay? Hands and arms reaching out to one another, yearning to hold, to hug, to be held. Love stretching across the distance. The judge bangs his gavel almost immediately. Again, I don't really speak Hebrew. I have about the vocabulary of a two-year-old, but this I understand. Quiet. Order. Stop. The accused gets wind that we're observers from Harvard, and he flashes us a winning smile and a peace sign, unbreakable. And before long, the judge decides he doesn't really want us there, and so he starts arguing with our chaperone in Hebrew to have us removed. But then this happens. He starts, he, he switches, and he turns to us, and he speaks directly to us. And he switches into English, and it is the most perfect New York accent. <laughs> because he's American. So we get thrown out. <clears throat> and I'm a special kind of asshole. And so Nick and I and <clears throat> a few of our friends, we try to finesse our way back in, and we succeed. <laughs> and now the courtroom is empty, and it's just us and the judge. So Nick says, can I ask you a question? The judge says, sure. <clears throat> he says, where are you from? The judge hesitates. New York. Where? The judge sort of laughs, Queens. Does it really matter? And Nick says, where do you live now? And the judge says, Israel. And Nick says, where? And the judge says, it doesn't matter where I live. But of course it does. By evading the question, what he's really saying is, I'm a settler. And I live in the occupied territories. And then the judge says, where are you from? And Nick says, Boston. And the judge says, you don't sound like you're from Boston. And he says, oh, well, we're sort of from all over. And then the judge says, you know, and he interlaces his fingers like this competitively. He says, you know, Boston and New York, they have a kind of rivalry, don't they? And Nick, who is a lifelong fan of baseball, says, uh, yeah, go Red Sox. <laughs> And we all sort of laugh nervously. And then the judge says, go Yankees. And he's sort of stammering. And he says, you know, you know, they've won 18 out of their last 20 games. And my universe shifts ever so slightly with a click. Because we are standing in a shipping container in the middle of fucking nowhere, in the heart of an apartheid state talking to an American judge who puts Palestinian kids in prison. And the conversation has turned into a pissing contest about baseball. Who are you here with, he says. Harvard. No, who's, who's organizing your trip? Harvard. No, no, who are your contacts here on the ground? And then we stay silent. He's taking notes. He says, forget it. I'll look into it. Our conversation was never about baseball, was it? And that, those questions that he asked at the end, they weren't really just idle curiosity. 
This place, it wasn't nowhere. And it wasn't temporary. But it's actually more than a symbol of Israeli apartheid. It's more than a metaphor for state power. We have to remember, this is a place where families are torn apart, where lives are destroyed, and where kids are thrown in jail. And as my friend Ciara will explain, that judge wasn't the only American connection to that place. But the way I see it, I think we're all implicated. Thank you very much. My heart's beating, and it's not because I'm nervous for this, but I'm still processing what I heard from Kevin, even though I also was there. So I hope you all are doing good. Um, my name is Yara, and I am a dual master's candidate at Harvard Divinity School and the Fletcher School at Tufts. And I spent my summer living in Ramallah, Palestine, and interned with the Carter Center's field office. I could spend a few hours sharing about the incredibly formative experience I had in Palestine, but I only have 15 minutes, so I'll try to do it justice. This is my Arabic tutor, Salwa, from Janine, Palestine, and her cousins, who I got to hang out with in Nablus for the day. Two places that have been in the news daily lately because of heightened military violence, including the settler-led pogrom in the village of Hawara a couple days ago that injured over 400 people, Palestinian people. One memory that felt salient to me with Salwa and her cousins was sitting on the steps waiting for her to come out of prayer and speaking with my broken Arabic to her cousins. They said something to me and I genuinely had no idea what they were saying, and I was like, Mishfahima, like, what's going on? And then he types it into Google Translate. He hands over the phone, and I read it, and it says, do Americans know about the occupation? My heart sank into my stomach. I struggled to respond. I did not know what to say, so I just shook my head and said, la. They half smiled, nodded, and lit their cigarette. Salwa returned, and we carried on. That moment was one of many that made me think about everything I was witnessing. Like, what do I say? Some Americans do know about the occupation. Some do, and they wouldn't call it an occupation. Many Americans don't know anything, nor do they know how involved we are in it all. I thought a lot about the past generations who have been complicit and turned their backs on Palestinians. I did not want this learning and sharing to leave once I left Palestine. I continued to think about getting through to my generation despite all of the challenges in our way. Everyone told us, come back and tell them what you saw. So we did. Me and my friend Sammy developed our theory of change through TikTok. We believed adding to the awareness campaigns and advocacy that many Palestinians and non-Palestinians have tried to do for so long would be important. We had a unique experience as Harvard students to live there, and we felt culture change, culture change can only happen through education. 
and TikTok should not be underestimated as a platform. So we launched in September and posted over 100 videos, and we're still posting today. Our main goal with TikTok was to get through to, spe to specifically to Americans. Ironically, thanks to the algorithm, we got a lot of Palestinian and Israeli traffic. Um, we didn't see it coming, but <laughs> lots of love, lots of hate. We encourage it all. Yay. While I was living in Ramallah, I only met one other American who was not Palestinian. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, because of this unique privilege we had to live there, uh, we thought it would be important to bring Palestine, both the most fun and the most difficult moments, to the American public. Here is an example of me trying to convey one of the experiences from our two weeks um, via TikTok. Tear gas canister made in Jamestown, Pennsylvania. These tear gas canisters made in the U.S. are thrown in a refugee camp in Bethlehem. At night and even sometimes in the day, the Israeli military will drive through that gate and throw tear gas, stun grenades, conduct nightly raids, arrest children, and a lot, lot more. This camp is used as a training ground for the Israeli military to practice and train. Close by, there's this community center where Palestinians made this beautiful hydroponic garden. And I was given this beautiful little strawberry and cucumber. But even this garden was tear gassed by the Israeli military. They couldn't use the garden for a while because it was unsafe for the kids to eat the vegetables. So my fellow Americans, please ask yourself, why are we allowing tear gas canisters made in Pennsylvania to afflict harm against Palestinian children? As an American, I continuously felt like this conflict, thousands of miles away, felt way too close to home. When visiting Masafriyata, an area of villages that are facing demolitions and evictions for a military training zone, as Zishan mentioned earlier, we heard stories like in this photo, where American, American settlers would live in these houses with red rooftops, with running water and electricity, while Palestinian Bedouins would not only get nothing, but also have what they do have taken away from them, like this oven for bread in the ground that was demolished by the Israeli military because settlers complained. This feeling that American Jews, and Americans like myself for that matter, had more rights than, the, than Palestinians who lived there was baffling. This Visualizing Palestine graphic, which I highly recommend checking out the other graphics, they're really insightful, shows us more about the rights Jewish Americans have, for example, um, versus Palestinian refugees, or even Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, for that matter. This is where I was sitting. What made it even more jarring was when President Biden visited in July, while many of us were there. Signs were put up by B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organization, saying something along the lines of, this is apartheid, Mr. President. While interning for the Carter Center, we put together an advocacy yeah. campaign. In light of the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh by the Israeli military, there was, and still is, momentum um, for getting justice for her. We felt it was important to draw light to the many violations Palestinian Americans are facing, such as murder, torture, attacks against Palestinian American children, denial of Palestinian American entry, exit, and land confiscations as well. We thought if the US is able to turn a blind eye to Palestinians, they couldn't do so to Palestinian Americans, right? Wrong. Unfortunately, there still is a lot of advocacy awareness and attention needed on this issue. 
The Biden visit was yet another presidential visit in which many Palestinians I talked to didn't have hopes for any attention or action. They kind of just laughed as a response to Biden visiting. When I returned, we wanted to make sure um, that we not only told people about what we saw, but also built awareness about US involvement and our individual complicity in what's happening against Palestinians. We at Harvard in the Boston community, we are in a defining moment. It is a very ripe time for change, particularly in discourse surrounding Israel-Palestine. I'm sure some of you know about the Ken Roth debacle earlier this semester. This is not an isolated incident, and the reinstatement of his fellowship and uproar most likely would not have happened if this person was not a white Jewish male who served as the executive director of a huge human rights organization for 30 years. I encourage you to follow Harvard PSC on Instagram to keep up to date about what is happening at Harvard. Um, we're a big community and there is a lot happening on this um, when it comes to discourse. I also highly recommend The Occupation of the American Mind. It's a free documentary, easily accessible online, that I think is a game changer and I tell everyone about it, so I'm telling you about it. Um, and finally, BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, and the US uh, CPR, or yes, uh, have some incredible resources, especially on coalition building across other marginalized groups. For example, Black Palestinian Solidarity, since the US and Israeli government rely on each other a lot when training their military and police using similar forms of violence and tactics on both Black and Palestinian populations. Lastly, um, a helpful resources, resource to understand how complicit we are just um, regionally, I guess, um, particularly when it comes to our tax dollars funding these atrocities, I turn to Sammy, the one gal of the two gals and pal, mm -hmm. to share with you um, a cool resource that's kind of scary. You know how the U.S. gives a ton of money to Israel every year for military funding? like 3.8 billion annually. And you know that that means that taxpayers are footing the bill for a ton of human rights violations against Palestinians, right? If you're an American watching this, you might be wondering, how much does my city, my state, my congressional district pay out of that $3.8 billion per year? Well, the US Campaign for Palestinian Rights has got you. They've got this sweet interactive calculator where you can put in your state, congressional district, county, city, and it'll tell you how much that that area paid per year. Here's Boston, for example, $11 million. It'll also tell you what that money could have funded instead. Teachers, food security, Pell Grant, healthcare, clean energy. I highly suggest you go check it out, whether you're American or not. And if you are American, after you check it out, maybe ask, do I wanna pay for this? A culture change is possible in the US, but the only way we can do this is by being bold and unapologetic in pursuit of a just peace. Shout out HDS, RPL, RCBI. Uh, <laughs> personally, I struggled to be bold. Um, there are a lot of repercussions and fear mongering for talking about Palestine and Israeli apartheid. It took me some time to be more vocal publicly. This experience made it clear that my voice and the voice of many of you in this room is critical for a culture change. If I am silent out of fear, ending human rights abuses is going to take a whole lot longer. 
if we all had that mentality, this would maybe be over tomorrow. So, so now I, I wear my keffiyeh every Thursday for keffiyeh Thursdays. I bring up Israel-Palestine in my classes. I, I talk about it with friends and I post on social media. This may not be what you all are comfortable with, but I encourage you to find ways even small that will go a long way. Even just saying Israel-Palestine. What happens at Harvard can be a huge precedent for other schools to follow. Things aren't going to change on its own. It's going to take all of us at Harvard and beyond to express concerns about these human rights violations and share that we do not want our taxes going to house demolitions, child arrests, murders, night raids, torture, pogroms and other forms of direct stru structural and cultural violence. Palestinians have been left out of the Israel-Palestine narrative for too long, and we all have a role in shifting that narrative, so be bold. On that, I will leave you with a sweet little video filled with some moments, um, and my friend who worked in the convenience store next to my house. Um, enjoy, and thank you. <laughs> we are very sad because you want to leave us, but I want to tell you something that we like you here and we want to see you again, you and all of your uh, friends from America to come back to Palestine again. You will, you will come anytime. Thank yes. you. I hope that I will see you after six months, <laughs> okay. one, one year. Okay? Inshallah, inshallah. inshallah. Hey. When I met you in the summer. who presented to uh, grab grab your seat and bring it up <laughs> so we can have a conversation people have questions How about that yes okay um, yeah thank you for listening we wanted to give an opportunity to have the conversation with with the group so does anyone have questions for any of us or us as a group we're, we're happy to talk through our experiences Hi, my name is Othman. I'm an HKS student. I'm also taking the class, actually, and I'm planning then to go during summer. I was wondering, one of the things that we're doing at the moment is like, I'm assuming you had the same experience grappling with all the readings and it can be heavy and, and um, yeah, it's like kind of learning what, what's going on. And I was wondering how those readings allowed you to approach like the situation in place once you arrived. Like I was just wondering how was that experience, like how was it for you to approach going there, knowing, having all these theoretical and, and like uh, background that you've built throughout the, the whole semester? I, I can start, yeah. Um, that's, that's a great question. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar, um, we spent a summer doing sort of an, an intensive scholarly investigation into the region. I mean, we, we, we read a lot of scholarly articles. We read some novels, some stories. We watched a lot of films. Um, for me, I, I think my experience all semester was that 
I think grappling with the readings was difficult. They were dense. Uh, they weren't really coming to life for me. Um, but it, it really took going there to, to really understand what a lot of those scholars were talking about. I think the experiential learning component and the, the course paired nicely together. And I think it's only looking back retrospectively that those readings now make sense. So I would maybe encourage you to, to stick with it and, and maybe realize that it's not all going to make sense right now. But, but I think after you go there, those readings definitely come to life more. That, that was just my experience. I don't know if others want to add anything. To me, having maybe like looked at more into the lens of displacement, uh, I think a lot of the movies that we watched and the documentaries that we covered in class that, that tackled the topic of Nakba were like half of the story and then seeing what is happening now on the ground. Where did these people go? Where did they flee for syphilis? Um, was interesting. It was like completing another part of the story. Um, yeah, and that stayed with me in my mind a lot. Yeah, I was just going to add that I think having the background of the readings really helped you see the bigger picture, even when you were like having the very specific instances, like, for example, the military courts um, or the settlements, like having that theoretical background helped you sort of tie it all together. Um, but also, I think it's helpful when you go to the region to like also try not to think of it as an academic, you know, really be there and experience it as well. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, I'm Nicole. I'm a second year master's <coughs> student getting my master's in Middle Eastern studies. Hi, I'm Amira. Um, I'm a, also a second year master's student at the Divinity School. Oh, I didn't do the internship. Hi, I'm Aaliyah. I'm a third year MDiv student here, and I was on the trip. I didn't do an internship, but I was on the trip. Kat, I was at the ed school um, and didn't, also did not do the, um, the internship, but I did want to say the readings were really helpful because it showed you that the when you go there, it feels familiar. And the strategy, but what is familiar is the strategies and the techniques of oppression. Like the readings show you how intentional it is. Um, and when you walk around, you, you see art on the walls and you see photos of martyrs and you call back to the fact that this martyrdom is structural and it's intentional. Um, so it, it provides a really good framing. And of course, like when you be there, you, you want to be a human and process in, in that way, but it gives you that, that firm foundation. I'm a, I'm a publisher and I publish as many Palestinian author and issue on Israel and Palestine as I can. I just want to know if you had the opportunity to meet some Israelis on your way in and um, if you were able to talk to them and see how they deal with this incomprehensible, you know, Stockholm syndrome that they are living through now. And some of them are in denial, some of them are not. Did you meet Many of them, any, any anecdotes to, to report on that front? Um, yeah, we did uh, meet several, um, several folks, I think, who were in different spaces politically. Um, and then I stayed during the internship and also met several other people who um, 
you know, ranged from people who spent um, every Saturday um, doing anti-occupation, like putting their bodies on the line, um, to people who, um, yeah, were very much in either denial or kind of like complacency, I would say. People who are um, fighting. Mm. Yeah. How do they see the state of Israel? Do they think things have gotten worse, or do they see there's an issue in the creation of the land? How do they negotiate this? Yeah. So the question, I'll just repeat, was, uh, if I understand correctly, was how do um, Israelis who are um, like fighting the occupation, fighting the apartheid state, how do they see it? Do they see the uh, injustice in the state of the, cre in the creation of the state of Israel, or do they think something has gone wrong? I think there's both. Um, and I think we met people who um, fell on both sides of that. Um, and I think we also met people who, um, very actively participated in the occupation and in um, upholding the apartheid state, and then at a certain, I mean, at a certain point, um, realized what was going on or had some kind of paradigm shift. And we spoke to several folks who were part of the um, the IDF, who then um, did a lot of work. You know, uh, what would you call it? Like. <laughs> Exposing, exposing the IDF, um, and I think I'll just share that um, one of the folks we met with, who was a really powerful um, activist, shared with us that um, he uh, joined the IDF, you know, as he had to when he was 18, and eventually was discharged because um, he realized that what he was doing was so wrong that um, he was driven to a point of um, really strong suicidal ideation and the IDF discharged him because um, they didn't want um, to be responsible in case something happened to him um, on his terms. And um, he spent the past many years um, working as an activist and shared with us that um, in terms of his relationship to his family that um, many members of his family don't speak to him. And in fact, some of them have not only threatened him with violence, but um, attacked him. And I think that moment was really powerful um, for me as an American Jew, because I think um, for many American Jews, especially folks who are anti-Zionist, non-Zionist, are questioning their relationship with Zionism, that is so real. And, um, it was really powerful to hear his perspective and his story. And we felt, I think, really honored that he shared the intimacy of that with us. Um, I just wanted to say one thing on that question too, and I apologize if I don't exactly answer your question, but um, one of the Israelis that we had the good fortune to meet was Haggai El-Ad. He's the executive director of B'Tselem. So B'Tselem is an Israeli human rights organization, which um, also published a report calling out Israeli apartheid um, and really describing it in that way. And I'll never forget one of the things that he said to us. He said, you know, for a long time, we thought that if we just exposed what was happening to the Israeli public, that they would be so horrified and so moved by what they saw that they, that they would, you know, their, whatever, their hearts would break or 
that they would change, that they would change. And he said, you know, we've been doing that for a long time and it hasn't worked. It really hasn't worked. And he said, so now we're in B'Tselem, is in a moment of soul searching and trying to figure out what instead is the thing. And he said, where we've landed is that self-interest is really the thing, right? You have to raise the cost of apartheid. You have to raise the cost of what's happening here. Um, and that is their new theory of change, is really pressure. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Ilaf. I am a second year student here um, at Harvard Divinity School. I'm black, I'm Arab, I'm Muslim, I'm American. And in rooms like these, I feel all the hyphens in my identity clashing and trying to find space, as I would imagine is what is happening uh, in Palestine. I've had the fortune of making the holy pilgrimage to Mecca many times, but for some reason this year and with Ramadan coming closer, I feel the call um, to visit Jerusalem, which um, as, as most people know, um, was the first direction of prayer for Muslims before the prophet uh, told us that we would switch to Mecca. And so my question for the panel hinges on on two comments, I would love to hear what anyone has to say. Um, my first uh, question would be with regards to the spiritual charge of being on that land, if anyone can put into words what it was like to be physically there. And then my second question would be with regard to the fact that Arabs and Jews are cousins. We've been cousins for the longest time. Um, if we go back long enough into the history, divisive storytelling is how we got here, and responsible storytelling um, is how we're going to get out. And so I would love to hear um, any comments on that. And thank you for the beef shawarma. It's been <laughs> ages since I've had Middle Eastern food this good, so I'm over the moon already. <laughs> thank you. Um, this was actually a question when I came back from um, Israel-Palestine, people ask me, like, how did you feel like when you visited this spot, this space, or at this, this place? And I was just like, for me, it wasn't, I didn't really have a spiritual experience. It was just kind of very confusing because it was just like, how do you have a spiritual experience with all of this kind of like violence and like commotion and just kind of like, all of this going on around you was hard to take all of that in. And so I think for me, that was like the paradox because I'm like, I'm supposed to be, this is supposed to be a spiritual experience, but I didn't feel anything spiritual when I was there. And so it was kind of like a thing for me, but. Uh, I, I also had a very similar experience where uh, I, I'm Muslim. I, I went to Al-Aqsa Mosque. I, was, I went in, you know, hoping to feel some sort of spiritual elevation. I thought it was going to rock my world, but I, I just couldn't get into it. And I almost feel, I mean, even, my, you know, my mother asked me, she, you know, she's always wanted to go to Al-Aqsa. And, and she was like, what was it like? What was it like? And I just had nothing to say. It was... I uh, was suffocated by images of suffering and torment, and I just really uh, I couldn't get in that headspace. Um, yeah, it, it's all it's almost embarrassing to say almost, uh, but that's I mean I relate to that so much. I just 
I couldn't turn on that that spiritual mode. Um, yeah, it just wasn't there. I have a thought, but I don't know if it answers your question, but I think it's still relevant to... Uh, on our two weeks, we went to a lot of places where the storytelling that was... We'd all be in the same area, for example, in like a really pretty um, view of all of Jerusalem. And it was interesting to be like with our tour guide from Grassroots Jerusalem, who was giving us, you know, the Palestinian narrative of what's happening, um, ethnic cleansing, displacement of East Jerusalem. And you could hear the other tours going on. And it was the most uncomfortable experience to be like, whoa, we're in the same place. We're looking at, we're in a very beautiful place. And at the same time, I'm hearing Holy Land tour over here, you know, birthright tour for um, Jewish students, college, high school ages. And we're all hearing different narratives in the same place. And so the idea of storytelling and responsible versus not, I think it really irked me because we have the privilege of being here, learning you know, so much, knowledge is power, and, and being able to hear the alternative narrative while someone like, I don't know, I could imagine my mom going on a Holy Land tour and being like, it was beautiful and so holy. Like, <laughs> that's how she talks. But um, yeah, I, it was something I was consistently grappling with where I just wanted to like break from the tour and be like, haha, guys, like, can we just talk about this other elephant in the room? Um, which some of the folks on our trek did <laughs> at points. Um, but still, yeah. Did you guys go to the White House? That's Harvard. <laughs> yeah, we have yet to be invited. <laughs> Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Adam, and I want to thank you guys for sharing your stories, first off. Um, so in my life experience, I know a lot of um, Jewish Americans that would go to Israel over the summertime like as a means to kind of connect back to their homeland. But when they would go, they would spend their entire time in Tel Aviv, for example, where it's very much a, a, a villa in the jungle and they're surrounded by the skyscrapers and the bustle of the city, and they don't really see the actual violence that's going on. So I guess my question is, how do you compact the horrors and the violence of the apartheid into a form that you can communicate with them as they have the luxury of having being able to look over this, they don't have to worry about it, It's they consider it not a part of their religion, not a part of their culture, not a part of their state of Israel. So how do you communicate this with them to kind of inform them and educate them in a way um, so that they can kind of know what is actually happening in Israel? Go, go. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that really speaks to um, something that I really grappled with before signing up for this class, which is um, I knew that the experiential learning part would be a part of it. And generally, as a person who tries to 
abide by BDS. Um, I really struggled with the idea of whether or not to go at all um, and whether to, um, you know, I think it's a question around like trauma tourism and um, what are the ethics of travel? What are the ethics of being in places? Um, what does it mean that people are not believed? Like, do you have to go somewhere in order to believe them? Um, and I feel really grateful for the opportunity to go on this trip because um, in my organizing work, uh, in my community organizing work, I felt that it was important for me to have some um, time on the ground in Palestine. But that being said, I think there is a really big question about whether whether you have to go in order to get involved, I don't think you do, but I do think the impact of going is very powerful and I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's many different people with many different answers. Many of the folks that I know in the US um, are very uh, uh, insistent that people do not go and many of the folks that we met um, in Palestine expressed their gratitude to us that we were there and so I think um, yeah, that's that's a question. To add to that, I think also it's mainly an issue of access, access to information, and being mindful of where that information comes from. Because on social media, you hear multiple narratives, and each come from a different with a different agenda. So being mindful of where does that come from before actually taking it into account as an educative tool, um, and also mainly focusing on being in such spaces like these, like these rooms, where maybe where you enter your beliefs, you you, you have this pre-assumed understanding that your, your assumptions might be challenged, your beliefs might be challenged, but still you would walk in and allow yourself to be in such a room where you you might not, 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 not everything it's gonna, you're gonna hear is gonna resonate with you, uh, with everything that you believed in before, but still choosing to be here to learn more. Um, yeah, and I think, it's very important to do that here at Harvard because we're privileged to be here and it's that's the right way to make use of such spaces. Hey, um, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm actually going to Paltrek. So in one week from now around this time, I'll be traveling to Palestine and I wanted to ask for that reason. Um, I have actually two questions. The first one is, how to prepare, what is something that you wish you had known looking back, so how to prepare in mentally, emotionally, or in whatever sense, whatever comes to mind, and also how do you, how do you talk to people afterwards? Because you know, a lot of my friends are going on iTrack, or also, you know, I come from a country, Germany, where I would say like awareness is, not very high on Palestinian issues for understandable reasons, but still you also mentioned, right, that some family members or classmates um, are unaware. And I just wanted to ask whether you can share maybe best practices on how to actually reach the hearts and minds of people who are a little bit less aware. I can start. Um, yeah, I think we were all grappling with this question. Uh, we had a few uh, friends that were in our class who actually went to Paltrack and then did the two weeks, one who then stayed the whole summer. 
Um, and it was interesting to kind of compare um, the different trips. Because Paltrek is such a short period of time, you're going to be exposed to a lot. And so I think first and foremost, just emotionally preparing in whatever way you can to kind of hold space because there is going to be a lot of emotions in a very short period of time. And a lot of us didn't really know how to deal with that. Um, from a coming back standpoint, I think what was really important for me personally, I recognize again, you're having you're, it's gonna be a week, but then you're gonna come back and a lot of the folks are gonna be coming back from iTrek. And I think there's just a really important responsibility that all of us have when we go and see everything, hear from all these Palestinian voices to then come back and bring what they shared. Um, because iTrek, I'm, I'm running the Paltrek at the Fletcher School for the first year, woo woo, shout out to some of the people here. Um, but we've had these conversations too of like, how can we prepare you know, those going on this trek to come back and, and not just be like, oh wow, that was really, I learned a lot, but then gatekeep all of that information. And so I think everyone's gonna process differently. It's gonna be, you know, some may not be able to share anything for a few weeks, months, whatever it may be. But at the same time, I think that if you can, if you feel comfortable to engage with your peers because you're gonna be having very different experiences, but that dialogue is going to be really important one-on-one -on -one with your peers who maybe you already have credibility with. And that's what I felt is like, not everyone's gonna listen to me. Some people are gonna shut me down just because I lived in Ramallah, I don't know. But others are gonna be like, oh yeah, Ciara, like, I like her kind of, I guess. Like, So maybe I should listen, or I will listen to what she has to say just because I like her as a person. I think that's kind of all of our, with some of our strategies of coming back and sharing with our family and friends too of like, hey, I had this really important experience and I really wanna share it with you. And if you love me, then you'll listen to me. So a little, a little guilt. <laughs> oh yeah, um, Sheer wants me to share one, a little short anecdote. I got back on like a Thursday and on a Saturday, my dad, I live in California, my dad, uh, he hosted a family party because I had missed my birthday or my, I celebrated my birthday in Palestine, best birthday ever. And then um, came back and there was like 40 people over, family members, friends, and I made a PowerPoint. <laughs> Um, and I printed out a bunch of photos and I put all of my souvenirs on the table and I was like, okay, everyone, like, come in the family room. And it was like 9.30 at night or 10. And then I had like a two hour presentation and I went through my entire camera roll of like two and a half months and I was like, this was that experience. This and this, did you know that? I'm sure you didn't like this. And some of them were falling asleep, but <laughs> the intention was there, you know, hearts and minds. Um. Yeah, I, I think I'll just add very simply, like, um, I'll plug our course syllabus to the extent that you have time. I think going in with some knowledge and, and doing some readings is really good. I, I don't have really much uh, advice for how to emotionally prepare. Um, I, don't, I don't know if anyone does, really. Um, it's going to be a lot. I would encourage you um, to also uh, expect that... Um, this is something I went through where, you know, I, I, th I, would ex I would encourage you to take a lot of notes and then expect that it'll take a long time to process things you see. Um, it took me months to write my, you know, five to ten minute speech I gave, and I don't think that that was really that much, but 
I, a lot of the memories are kind of suppressed and um, I think it helps to talk to people who are there with you to to bring those memories out again. But I think just expect that it'll hit you in, in waves and, and maybe you'll remember things months later that, that you kind of suppressed immediately after the fact. Um, so take a lot of notes, go in with some knowledge, go in expecting that uh, it'll be emotionally intense and that it'll maybe take a long time for it all to flow out. I mean, I think this for me uh, was a very helpful experience and and bringing things out again. Again, uh, it's easy to come back and just want to block it all out of your memory um, because it's hard stuff to grapple with. So um, I think many of us probably share that. Yeah, I don't know if that helps. Maybe that makes it worse. But <laughs> yeah, the only thing I would add is like Sushan said, I would take a lot of notes and like I don't know about like whatever mental health practices work well for you, take them with you. Like if you like to meditate, keep that up while you're there. Just like expect that it's going to be really, really hard. Um, I think journaling really helps. But yeah, it's going to keep coming up forever. Like when Kevin was talking today, I started crying again. So yeah. Um, and then as far as sharing, I would just say, I think one thing that really has helped approach my family and friends is like sharing the personal anecdotes um, and the stories that Palestinians specifically told us because I think at least the people that I'm engaging with are sort of like they don't want to hear about Israel and Palestine politics and like feel like I'm like a news person they like want to feel it in their hearts so it helps expose that side and like move past the news so that's just my tip. Thank you very much. Um, I'm um, not a Harvard student. I'm um, a fellow at the Kennedy School, <clears throat> and uh, I'm a Palestinian. I've uh, lived in the Middle East most of my life, but I'm living here now. Uh, but I just want to share with you one or two thoughts and then ask you a question. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at, at what I'm hearing tonight. I, I mean, I knew it would be amazing because Hillary's an old friend, but the first time I actually um, witness something like this, but you should know that what you're doing is really at the cutting edge of a global movement of change. You probably don't appreciate it right now, but I can tell you, I'm 75 years old. When I was in college 50, 55 years ago here in, in New York, uh, in New York State, um, there was nothing like this uh, about uh, the, uh, the Middle East. Um, there was Vietnam War, the beginning of the environmental movement, the beginning of the women's rights movement. But what you're doing now today is um, being involved in a movement that is that, that brings, to, not, not a movement, but in a process by which people wake up to the social injustice realities and the oppression realities and colonial realities and all the things that, that you're studying. But it's important for you to understand that you bring together um, the four great movements that will shape and change our world, which is Black Lives Matter, which colonialism, uh, Me Too uh, movement, climate change, and the Palestinian issue. The Palestinian issue is now the fourth global movement where demonstrations take place all over the world. And it, it's taken 55 years for this to happen on a big scale. And for people like you at Harvard and for Harvard officially to offer a course like this and let you go, and other things are happening. I just got an email, there's an event tomorrow at the law school, 
<coughs> at Harvard about settlers and things. So um, th this is a profound uh, process that, that you're involved in, and I, I really uh, uh, bow in humility uh, before you, even though I've been involved in the struggle uh, all my life. My question is, um, have you felt, since you've come back, any kind of serious pushback against the kind of things that you say, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian American or sec secular, whatever you may be, have you felt any pushback? And have you felt that the way you make progress is not just to tell people about what you saw and experienced, but to be involved in a process of mobilization? So one of you mentioned mobilizing or organizing. Uh, and that's that's how, how, how change happens. So thank you very much for what you do. Um, so the reason that I took the course was because I was approaching it. I wanted to learn about black Palestinian solidarity. So that was kind of like the angle that I was approaching it from. Um, and so like coming back afterwards, I always, when talking about Palestine, I always try to connect it to the black struggle here in the US. And I found that like talking to some black people who have been to Israel, they have done like more of the holy sites and different things like that and, and don't necessarily know about the Palestinian struggle. And I have found pushback when talking about the Palestinian struggle because they have only seen one side. They were only exposed to one side. So for me, it's been about literally framing and connecting the, this, the identical issues that we see in Palestine to the, to the issue that we see black people facing in America. And even here, HDS is difficult. Like, I mean, I've been called anti-Semitic by people, you know, by someone here at HDS, you know? So it's very difficult to have these conversations. Um, but for me, I always try to start from the perspective of the black struggle and then start from there. I can say something. I'd like someone else to say something too. <laughs> um, I, my friends make a joke and they're like, wow, did you go to like Palestine this summer or something? Because um, I talk about it a lot. Uh, and I think that's important because there is a sort of destigmatizing that happens when you do that. Um, for people that might be on the fence and can kind of make the connections of BLM and, and Palestine or other causes. And I think the pushback I've gotten, I had some pushback in my class a couple weeks ago on memory politics, ironically, where I the question was around um, how memory informs national identity, uh, heroism, victimization, et cetera. And naturally, I wanted to talk about Israel-Palestine after reading, doing all our course readings. It felt like a very important context. And so I, I, did, I, just, I didn't know what the vibes were in the class, and I just said my spiel in a very nice way. And my professor said something in response along the lines of, thank you for your comment. You know, in the United States, Israel-Palestine is a very controversial issue, and a lot of people get in trouble for talking about it. 
and someone asked me why it's not on the syllabus and I said it's too complicated and too controversial. So I'll leave it at that, no comment. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> uh, that is not what I expected. But I think there's examples like that where then it's really critical that we continue to not be scared about maybe any repercussions or fear mongering that comes out of it. And I think to answer your question more specifically, I I don't know if I have faced necessarily direct pushback, even though I like will wear a keffiyeh and do things like that. But I'm sure people are talking about it behind my back. And that's cool too. Um, but I think just knowing that I saw what I saw, I can stand comfortably and say I saw it. And that's the side of history I want to be on. And as long as I keep telling myself that, no matter what everyone else has to say, I can feel like I'm sleeping comfortably at night, so. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to say thank you for expressing your appreciation. I think it's very humbling to hear someone who's been part of the struggle for, for so many decades uh, affirm us like that. So it's very humbling as well uh, to hear your words. Um, I think the, the pushback is real. Uh, I, I, I think um, I get into these conversations a lot with friends. Um, not all my friends share my views. Um, but I think what I try to do is really be about the conversation. Um, I'm not really someone who gets into a lot of online disputes, but I like to talk to people in person. And I find that if you can sit down with someone, uh, maybe you can collectively reach a point of at least a mutual understanding, if not agreement. Um, I, I like to engage with people who have differing, differing views from me um, because it helps me understand my own views better and it helps me understand theirs. So I, I like engaging in the conversation and if you have uh, dissidents or uh, you know people who uh, oppose your views and they wanna talk to someone, I'm happy to talk to them and I won't necessarily win that argument, but I, I think we can maybe both come out with a better understanding of each other. So I, I like the conversation. I think talking to people has is a blessing. So uh, yeah, I don't know if that's a, a great answer to the question, but um, yeah, yeah. I feel like I've been talking. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I was like, I have an answer for every question. <laughs> um, yeah, so in terms of pushback, um, I guess I'll just speak to, um, a bit of the Jewish experience at Harvard talking about this. So I, among some other people in this room, help um, run, pro I think the first of its kind, um, like a Jewish student group at Harvard for anti-Zionist, non-Zionist, and Jews questioning their relationship with Zionism <laughs> um, group called Jews for Liberation. And I'll just share that when we started that um, a little more than a year ago, I remember um, sending a group, uh, a. WhatsApp message just saying, hello, I'm starting this group. If you'd like to be in it, please message me. And I turned off the notifications and I woke up the next morning to two missed calls, one voicemail and 80 messages. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that, um, especially within the Jewish community, um, you know, folks who are, uh, vocal about the struggle for Palestinian liberation are called everything from anti-Semitic to self-hating Jews. And I think that um, the pain of that is real. 
And um, I also think that the responsibility um, and the pain um, is on Jewish community to support people in grappling with the internalized Zionist narratives that we have been taught so that that burden does not fall on Palestinians. And that is the responsibility of um, Jewish leaders and spiritual caretakers. And um, I think there's also a lot of fear within Jewish communities um, about the personal, familial, political, religious, um, and professional pushback and consequences of being vocal about um, your support for Jewish, for um, Palestinian liberation and Jewish-Palestinian solidarity. I'm a person looking at a career in Jewish leadership, and I know that um, I have already faced and will continue to face professional consequences for the rest of my life. And I think that, um, I guess just what I wanna say is, I think the fear of whatever the consequences are in being vocal about Palestinian liberation cannot outweigh the importance of being vocal about Palestinian liberation. And it is on us collectively um, as people from different marginalized communities to build solidarity, to build the spiritual and collective strength to work through the challenge of that in order to be vocal about Palestinian liberation. Hi, um, I'm an HDS student thinking about taking this class for like, I don't know, the next round of people going, um, not in the class now, but I have like, I guess just like concerns, um, not like concerns, but like personal stuff that like makes it like me question going on a trip, kind of what to you were saying, Cher. Um, and I was just wondering if some of you could like felt that similarly and like, um, like the trauma tourism business, like if that bled through into the trip and how that like, maybe you guys felt about that um, because like, I feel like that's something I'm struggling with related to like taking this class. Um, so for me it's, it's different because like I said, I was approaching this to learn about black Palestinian solidarity. So for me, seeing those connections was what I really needed to see because I really wanted to see how this was a global white supremacy system. And so like, although some of the things we saw were bad, like I said, I needed to see those things because I needed to see it in a larger picture. So it can feel like trauma tourism. Um, but for me, I'm gonna say it didn't feel like that, but it. It, for me, it really was a learning experience. So if you approach it from that angle, like literally like a learning experience, um, it's different. And then, and you know, like the people want to tell you their story. They want you to see what's going on because of course the mainstream media, you know, manipulates um, narratives. And so they really want you to see what's going on. So I think approaching it from that might, might help. Yeah, I think the one short thing I'll say is that everyone we spoke to was so eager to tell us our story and then say, go back and tell your friends and family. Um, and so 
for me, I felt like I worked out those feelings by taking that on, you know, I didn't go there for just to see this trauma and then move on with my life. I went there to do what they told me to do, to go back and share what they had told me. I again think it goes back to the conversation around gatekeeping the experience. There was 16 of us who went on the trip. 15. Um, and yeah, th that's like a good amount of people. But at the same time, there's so many people that can't go on the trip because, you know, Harvard doesn't have enough resources or other conversations. And I think because it's such a privilege, if you're able to go on this trip or even go on Paltrack, like these are experiences that for some reason, I feel like people give more credibility to the folks who have seen it. Um, and so that's another thing that I felt like when grappling along the, with when grappling with the idea of trauma tourism, I continued to think about, go back and tell them what you saw and also that now they know I just spent some time there and I got a different perspective than all the people who have traveled to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and said they've visited you know, these beautiful places and I can actually share the narrative. Um, and one last thing that I wanted to mention last time, but it also kind of is relevant to this question, is just like when we came back, I think all of us, <laughs> had the same understanding that we're not going to be able to win the hearts and minds of those who are you know, staunchly pro-Israel or Zionist. Like they already have their mind made up. I mean, maybe some of us feel that way, but I think the majority of us also felt like, no, the people that we need to go tell are the people that are just like, yeah, Israel-Palestine, there's a conflict, right? And those are the minds and hearts that if you win those, that's going to contribute to the culture change, um, not those who have their mind made up on either side, then you're preaching to the choir or you're preaching to a choir that doesn't want to listen. If that's, I don't know, that's, that made sense. <laughs> you get it, cool. I think also to add to that, um, personally being a student at the design school, I think there is this large sense of unfamiliarity with the conflict, uh, which, pushes people, which pushes people away a bit. Like they just know Israel, Palestine, that's it. They just it doesn't resonate with them much. But if you bring it, like for example, from Elias perspective, like to, let's say if you could compare it to a, to a different struggle, human, humanitarian struggle that people might resonate with more here in the United States and understand that we're talking still about the same issues of resistance and of solidarity and oppression, then it would resonate more with the people. And from what I've observed here at being at Harvard, I think <coughs> the majority, they just don't know where they stand they don't feel comfortable talking about something that they're not very familiar with. There is the language barrier, there is the culture barrier, and being on this trip kind of breaks that barrier down. Um, and also, to bring it back to the issue of access, um, I personally couldn't go because of my nationality being an Algerian, and still, I feel like my peers having gone there and came back, they had this perspective that it's, it's it's an opportunity that is given to them to go, that not everyone is capable of doing that and and come and choosing to come back and tell the stories of the people. Because the people there, they struggle a lot with, with this issue of access. They can't leave those territories. It's very hard for them. Even I have a lot of Palestinian friends, even after they want, let's say, scholarships or so, um, to pursue their education, they're still not able to, 
go on this um, to pursue their educational opportunities because of just simply being Palestinian. And so that's why this reporting back the stories is very important for them. That's how you change the narrative. Joining us, but please join me in thanking everyone. He's so many of you will hear our students, and hopefully these conversations will continue. With the students who are on campus, you're, you can, can I, reach out to us. Can I just say one thing? I just want to thank Reem, Hillary, Professor Omar for for coordinating the trip. It was really a blessing to have a trip that was centered around the Palestinian struggle, to take tours of Tel Aviv, of different places from a Palestinian lens was honestly a blessing because you don't get that narrative. So thank you, Reem. Thank you, Hillary. Sponsor, Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2023. President and Fellows of Harvard College.